0: Thank you, everyone, for being with us here on uh, on Facebook. We're here to answer your questions about the Constitution with NCC President and CEO Jeffrey Rosen. Um, it, we're not going to obviously get to all of the questions that we've received, but we will uh, try to answer them in future editions of Constitution Weekly, which is our weekly newsletter um, on constitutional news debates etc, that you could sign up for at the National Constitution Center's website. So Jeff, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Tom. Uh, thanks everyone for joining on Facebook Live. What an exciting time at the Constitution Center. Last week, we announced our new chair, Vice President Joe Biden. And the vice president succeeds an incredible group of chairs: Governor Jeb Bush, President Bill Clinton, and President Bush 41. An amazing group of statesmen from both sides of the aisle, and we are so honored to have the chance to work with the Vice President in the years ahead. And Tom mentioned this great new feature, we've got Constitution Weekly. It's a weekly email where we set the constitutional question of the week, which often jumps off of our We the People podcast, which I hope you're subscribing to, and which this Facebook Live will be released uh, as part of tomorrow. And then we uh, release the relevant clause from the Interactive Constitution, Commentary and primary sources that allow you to make up your own minds, and other uh, great programs from the NCC. So sign up for the newsletter. The best way to do that is to join as a member. Go to the Constitution Center website, constitutioncenter.org, uh, and just sign up at any level. The uh, money is not important, although obviously we need your support. I want you to be a member of the Constitution Center so you can get our incredible content and educate yourself about the Constitution every week now that it is more important than ever.
0: Excellent, Jeff. Well, our first question actually jumps off of our last Facebook Live, uh, and uh, it is, Jeff, which modality of constitutional interpretation do you favor, and why?
1: Wow, well, like uh, a parent with children, you're not supposed to have favorites, and I think it's more important, the more I teach the Constitution, the less interested I am in my own theories of the Constitution and more interested in just uh, discussing them, opening up, and being open to the possibility of sometimes mixing and matching. Um, But since you asked, I'll I'll try to answer it. I guess my favorite comes from my hero, Louis Brandeis. Uh, Friends of the Constitution Center won't be surprised that whenever I have a hard constitutional question, I ask WWBD what would Brandeis do? And Brandeis' approach to interpretation, I think I would call living originalism. He began with the text and history of the Constitution. He believed strongly in enforcing structural limitations on the executive and Congress. So he voted to strike down the most centralizing aspects of the New Deal. And he also believed that the president should not have unchecked power either. Uh, In this sense, he was a true Jeffersonian. Jefferson was his great inspiration. And he believed in the states as laboratories of democracy and in a constrained president and Congress. Brandeis also believed in fiercely enforcing the enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights, and he's the most inspiring prophet of free speech and enforcer of the Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures in the 20th century. At the same time that he's fierce in enforcing the text and history of the Constitution, he insists on translating the Constitution into a world of new technologies. So unlike a majority of the court, unlike Chief Justice William Howard Taft, who was a more conventional originalist, and merely asked, would the framers have approved of wiretapping? And obviously, they didn't think of wiretapping, but because they they insisted on physical trespass to trigger the Fourth Amendment, Taft said wiretapping isn't a problem. Brandeis wants to identify the values that the framers were trying to protect, namely, uh, insulating us against general warrants that rummage through our most private thoughts and sensations and emotions, and translating that into an age of new technology. So that's why I call him a living originalist, but that's not the same as a living constitutionalist who wants to define constitutional values so abstractly that any connection between the values and the text is elusive. Brandeis is very much rooted in the text and history and the original paradigm cases, in enforcing the structures and rights that the founders, and in particular Jefferson himself, had emphasized. But there's one more really important well, there are I'd say two more really important aspects of Brandeis's judicial philosophy. One is that he's so devoted to the states as laboratories of democracy, and in that sense, to judicial deference. He really believes that policy has to be made in legislatures rather than. In courtrooms, he has such faith in the ability of people to educate themselves and to be engaged citizens, and he'll, he almost never voted to strike down state laws because he thought that state legislatures were the right place for people to experiment with policy. And the final thing is that he was fierce in his opposition to concentrated corporate power and he's part of a tradition of economic equality and an opposition to monopolies that begins with Jefferson, that continues through Jackson, then Brandeis and Wilson, then FDR, and then Harry Truman. That tradition, so important today now that there's renewed concern about economic equality, uh, especially among uh, the small business people uh, who Brandeis thought were the core of his Jeffersonian vision, Um, was central as well. So to sum up, living originalism, start with the text and history, identify the paradigm cases the founders were trying to protect, translate it into a world of new technologies, enforce structural limitations on the presidency, Congress, and enforce individual rights, uh, but at the same time be deferential to democracy and in particular to the states as laboratories of democracy. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Uh, Our next question is about Article 5 and constitutional change. Uh, Please discuss the Article 5 provisions for calling a convention to amend the U.S. Constitution. Is there a risk of a runaway convention, which is what you could call the original convention that was supposed to revise the Articles
1: of Confederation? We had two wonderful events on this very question here recently, and viewers and listeners, check them out. There was an intelligence squared debate uh, resolved, should we call a convention to amend the Constitution? And then we had a great event just about a week ago here about whether we should amend the Constitution to impose term limits on Congress. And in those two debates, we had the leading voices for and against a convention. So you'll hear on those two podcasts and tapes, the best arguments for and against a convention and a runaway convention but I'll try to summarize them fast. But first, let's begin with the text. As always, Article 5. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of the Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. Okay, that was a lot of moving parts. Let's just review two ways to propose. One, Congress can propose by a two-thirds vote, or two, the legislatures of two-thirds of the states can apply to Congress to call a convention. Obviously, the mode is important, because if you're talking about a term limits amendment, Congress is unlikely to propose it on its own. It doesn't want to limit its own terms. But if the states demand a convention of the states that might be more likely to go through. But anything the convention or Congress proposes does not become part of the Constitution unless it's ratified, and ratification in two ways, three-quarters of the state legislatures or three-quarters of special conventions called by the states. So it's hard to pass a constitutional amendment. And that's really important. This is an age when we are seeing populist forces sweeping around the world and you're seeing a country like Britain decide Brexit by a simple majority vote in a referendum. The framers would never have countenanced that kind of important constitutional decision being made on an up or down vote. They wanted uh, the... Uh, people to have to jump through lots of hoops, to go through different steps in order to ensure that an amendment represented the considered, thoughtful, deliberative sense of the people. It's all about deliberation and public reason. So it's supposed to be hard to pass an amendment. Uh, What about a runaway convention? Well, this is not uh, a hypothetical, the possibility of a convention of the states, although never before in American history has an amendment been proposed uh, except by Congress. Uh, 27 states have called for a convention that would propose a balanced budget amendment. Only 34 states are necessary, so that means that theoretically, just seven more states have to ask for a constitutional convention in order for one to be called. Uh, and in just the beginning of this year, 10 state legislatures have bills pending that would call for a convention. So this is a real possibility. Is it a Good idea. Is there a danger of a runaway convention that could propose not simply the balanced budget amendment that it was called to propose, but anything else? Well, you can hear the best arguments for and against a runaway convention by listening to the Intelligence Squared debate or the Term Limits event. But very briefly, uh, Mark Meckler, uh, who is the president of Citizens for Self-Governance, was in the IQ Squared debate. And he said that We are on the precipice of a national disaster, whether or not you agree with the election results. Uh, He says that calling a convention would drain the swamp. And he says that states have plenty of experience with conventions. There've been state constitutional conventions all the time. They're limited by rules and those rules are followed. So Meckler is not concerned that a convention would disobey the rules under which it was called and is confident that it would propose the amendment it was supposed to propose. And then Meckler says, even if it didn't, you don't have to worry about it because a proposal is just a proposal. Even a runaway convention would have to have its amendments ratified by three-quarters of the state legislatures or by special conventions, and it's um, impossible to get three-quarters agreement on crazy amendments. But then David Super of Georgetown Law School made the argument on the other side. And I'll just say descriptively, remember, we're just neutral moderators here, but uh, super side won the Intelligence Squared debate because after his closing argument, the audience shifted its vote. And after having initially voted either ambivalently or modestly in favor of a convention, it changed its mind and voted against. And I think the audience was moved by Super's three arguments, and these were Super's arguments. First, that this is probably the worst possible time to be amending the Constitution because the divisiveness of the country is so great, there's so little consensus on any issue, and populist forces are so chaotic that it's possible that the convention really could propose amendments that would strike at the core of the structural constitution itself, make it even more democratic and lead to populist chaos. Super's also afraid about what the rules would be um, under a convention, and he fears that the procedural rules would be thrown out the window. It's really important to remember the original Constitutional Convention proposed a document that was illegal under the existing rules of the Articles of Confederation, which required unanimous uh, agreement before an amendment could be passed. The Articles changed that, uh, rather the convention changed that, and Super is afraid that Um, nothing could stop any future convention from changing the rules as well. And Super's final point was that even if a convention did stick to the amendment for which it was called, the amendments that are most likely to be proposed, a balanced budget amendment, a term limits amendment, and an overturning Citizens United amendment wouldn't accomplish everything they set out to do, and he says they're not good ideas. So those those are the arguments on both sides. Check out uh, the Intelligence Square debate and the term limits event, and make up your own mind.
0: I would just also uh, add a plug for our interactive constitution, which you, you should uh, uh, look at at the National Constitution Center's website, but there's a fantastic essay set by Michael Rappaport of uh, University of San Diego and uh, David Strauss of the University of Chicago talking about Article 5's
1: text in history. I'm so glad you plugged it. We have to plug it at every opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, you're live on Facebook now. Go to your phones now. Don't wait. And for free, download this incredible app, the Interactive Constitution in the App Store. It is just a constitutional feast. And if you don't have it yet, you need to get it. As Tom said, the Article 5 explainer is just live now for the first time. And you can also read about all the other um, issues in the news that we're going to be talking about on this Facebook Live and on this podcast. And it is spectacular. It's gotten 10 million hits since it launched a year ago. We are bringing it to every student in America. We're doing great partnerships and learn about it and read from it every
0: day. Excellent. Uh, Next question is, can you explain the process for cases getting to the Supreme Court? possible talk about courts of appeals and and bank
1: hearings. Realistically, what's the fastest that a case could get to the Supreme Court? Great. Well, let's start again with the text, as always. And the best place to start with the text is the interactive constitution, but I have my great uh, prep document here. So I'm going to read from the text from Article 3, Section 2. Article 3 is the part of the constitution that establishes the judicial power of the United States. And Section 2 says, The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this constitution, the laws of the United States and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors or other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party. I know this is long, but it's important. To controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, and then there are a few uh, more provisions. And then it goes on to say, to answer the question, when does the Supreme Court jump in as an initial matter? In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. So that's the crucial thing. Original jurisdiction means the Supreme Court hears it first, it doesn't go to another lower court Uh, If uh, ambassadors, public ministers, and consuls are involved, or the state is a party, the Supreme Court hears it first. In all other cases before mentioned, and that was that long list that included cases in law and equity, cases uh, involving admiralty and maritime jurisdictions, cases controversies and so forth, in all those, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and facts with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. That exceptions clause is really interesting and I remember in law school being so surprised and incredulous that Congress could make exceptions to the court's jurisdiction and basically say, hey court, you can't hear a whole category of cases. Like if Congress doesn't like the abortion cases, it could say the Supreme Court can't hear any abortion cases. And I remember arguing with my great teacher, Akhil Amar, who Tom you had as well, uh, and said, this is not possible, this violates the separation of powers. And Akhil said, look at all the time the uh, Congress has done it before. During the Civil War, it reduced the size of the court to punish Lincoln right before Jefferson took office. It reduced the size of the court to deny Jefferson the ability to appoint any justices. So Akhil said, history and text favor the Congress's power to make exceptions to the kind of appellate cases the court can hear. Uh, But then the question is, how generally does the case go up to the court? And obviously, this is very much in the news nowadays, as we're seeing constitutional challenges, most recently to the travel ban, and people wondering, how quickly could the Supreme Court hear it? Well, most cases start at a federal district court level. That's a federal trial court. And it was a federal district court that stopped that travel ban. That was one single judge who had the power for the entire country to say, because this travel ban unconstitutionally affects travelers from around the world, he was going to enjoin it or stop it from going into effect across the entire world. Once the district court uh, issues a ruling, whether by a judicial ruling or a jury verdict, then the case proceeds up to the next level, which is called the circuit court or the appellate court. And generally, the circuit court is first a three-member panel. And we saw that three-member panel in the travel ban case when we listened in on that incredibly riveting constitutional phone call and heard three judges in different places because the Ninth Circuit is really big, hear a case in real time. It can go from a three-judge panel up to what's called an en banc court, or en banc court, and that means the entire circuit court. Do you know how many judges are on the Ninth Circuit? It's a whole lot. Uh, I'm not sure, but yeah, it is quite a few, yeah. I mean, you know, a a lot more than three, 15 or 20 or something like that. There are proposals to break up the Ninth Circuit because it's so big. Um, and if the whole court agrees to hear it, the on bank court can either affirm the three judge panel or reverse it. And then, from the on bank court or the appellate court decision, you can seek what's known as a writ of certiorari. What's that? It's a writ that the Supreme Court issues, agreeing to hear the case, and it's issued to the lower court. And it um, is the way that the Supreme Court chooses to review on uh, bank or a lower court decision. Very few writs of certiorari are granted. Only one percent of all the applications the Supreme Court gets are granted. I may be getting these numbers wrong, but it may be eight thousand uh, requests a year, and it, it, it hears about eighty cases, something like that. Um, what's the best way for a court, the court, to hear your case? Generally, a disagreement among the lower federal courts. If the two circuits disagree, say the Ninth Circuit says the travel ban is unconstitutional, but the Uh, First Circuit in Boston, where a federal district judge initially said it was okay, disagrees. In order to resolve that circuit split, the Supreme Court will often jump in. But it's possible for the court to jump in uh, more quickly. Generally, it it can take a couple of years for a case to percolate up to the Supreme Court. The Obergefell marriage equality decision took about two years from the filing of the complaint at the district court to the time when it got up to the Supreme Court. But the Bush v. Gore case in 2000 was much quicker, and it was only a few days after the Florida Supreme Court issued its holding that the U.S. Supreme Court jumped in on the grounds that speed was necessary. And the Pentagon Papers case was also decided fast. Uh, There was sensitive national security issues asserted by the federal government and the court heard that quickly as well. So that's a long way of saying that the court can jump in whenever it wants. Generally, it waits for stuff to percolate very uh, up through the lower courts. It takes four justices to hear a case and to issue a writ of certiorari. It's called the rule of five. The basic idea is that if four justices want to hear it, think, think an issue is important enough to hear it, a fifth justice will throw in a courtesy fifth vote and allow the case to be heard. So that's the custom. Now, sometimes if the justices aren't sure which way their colleagues will go, they might strategically vote not to hear the case. Let's say Justice Kennedy is the swing vote and people aren't quite sure which way he's going to vote. They might vote not to review the lower court decision. Generally, statistically, the Supreme Court reverses most of the lower court decisions it agrees to hear. It tends not to accept Cases when it thinks they're unequivocally correct, although the decision to review a case may reflect nothing more than there's a fact that there's a disagreement among the lower uh, federal courts. But um, if you are arguing before the court and the court takes your case, um, you've got a decent chance that the lower court decision will be overturned. Excellent.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on Facebook Live. Uh, we're going to log off right now, but Jeff and I are going to continue the conversation offline and uh, put it into our our, our weekly uh, podcast discussion. So please subscribe to, uh, to We the People podcast if you don't already, um, and thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. See you offline. All right, Jeff, let's go to the next question. I'd be interested in a discussion about President Trump's January 25th executive order called Enhancing Public Safety in the Interior of the United States. It seems that because of the uproar about the immigration executive order, this hasn't gotten much attention. But the Sanctuary cities executive order raises interesting separation of power questions. Does the president have the authority to unilaterally pull funding? from cities and counties that do not comply with his immigration policies by executive order, can the federal government force city and county government officials to carry out federal immigration
1: law, or is that commandeering uh, local officials? Great question. We're going to be talking a lot about it over the weeks ahead. And tomorrow, we're going to Washington, D.C., to Georgetown Law School to record a podcast, which will be published next week, where Josh Blackman and Peter Edelman will really dig into this question of the immigration order, and also any new travel bans that may come down soon. Uh, But there are two questions, and they're both important. The first has to do with commandeering, and the second has to do with the uh, conditional use of funds. So the first thing to remember is that um, there's nothing unusual about executive threats against so-called sanctuary cities. When some sanctuary cities said that they didn't want to enforce President Obama's immigration policies, Attorney General Loretta Lynch Threatened to withhold federal funds from those cities. And although that didn't get tested in court, uh, that was a threat that was issued. So are President Trump's orders different? They're obviously different as a matter of policy. President Trump's new immigration priorities are very different than President Obama's, and he's promised to uh, deport illegal immigrants uh, who uh, have been in the country up to two years and located anywhere in the country, as opposed to under the Obama administration, where it was just those who had been in the country no more than 14 days and were in 100 miles of the border. Uh, But what's the constitutional answer? And remember, we the People podcast listeners on this show, we're only interested in constitutional analysis, not in policy analysis. The question is not, is this immigration order a good or bad idea, but does it violate the Constitution? So on commandeering, there are a bunch of important Supreme Court cases. There is, as well as relevant federal laws. There's a 1996 law that forbids uh, localities from withholding information about immigration status. Uh, But there's a Supreme Court case called the Prince case that challenges laws that purport to direct or commandeer local and state officials to carry out the federal government's bidding. The new policy tries to get around this by saying that this is a cooperative partnership between the feds and all willing local law enforcement and the local law enforcement are supposed to sign memorandums of understanding. Uh, Nevertheless, some scholars thought that the initial policy was unconstitutional under anti-commandeering principles. Uh, Barry Friedman from NYU, who was here last night for a phenomenal program on his great new book on Policing Unwarranted, which you can see on C-SPAN and on our live feed, wrote that two core rules of federalism preclude Trump's idea. The federal government can't coerce states or cities into action with a financial gun to the head, according to the Supreme Court in the Affordable Care Act case, and federal officials can't commandeer state officials to do their work for them under this 1997 decision that involved gun purchases under the Brady Act. That was the Prince case. Uh, So that's the argument that this order violates these anti-commandeering principles. And indeed, the city of San Francisco has filed a complaint uh, invoking the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution and accusing the U.S. of violating it. Uh, San Francisco's brief says, in blatant disregard of the law, the president of the United States seeks to coerce local authorities into abandoning what are known as sanctuary cities, laws, and policies. This strikes at the heart of established principles of federalism and violates the US Constitution. Not everyone agrees this is an issue with arguments on both sides, and I want you uh, listeners to educate yourselves about them. Uh, There was a piece in the L.A. Times by Elizabeth Price Foley and David Rifkin who said anti-commandeering doesn't apply to the Trump order because cases like Prince, that 1997 case where the court said that the feds can't conscript state or local officials to carry out federal law, doesn't apply when Congress merely requests information. And that's all they're doing here. They're requesting information about the immigration status, according to the defenders of the Trump order. And they invoke a 2000 case from the Supreme Court called Reno and Condon, where the court unanimously rejected an anti-commandeering challenge to the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, which requires states to disclose personal details about license holders. There's a counter to that, of course, as there, there always is. And that comes from Ilya Soman who says that this argument only applies to the disclosure of information, but doesn't allow the federal government to force state and local officials actually to help apprehend and deport migrants. So much will turn on whether or not this actually is a voluntary agreement between the local officials and the feds in terms of the carrying out of the deportations, um, or whether it merely applies to the disclosure of information, which the Supreme Court cases seem to say the Fed's can request. So those are that's just a brief introduction to the anti-commandeering issue and I want you to read the Prince case, PRINTZ from 1997, and I also want you to next uh, go to the interactive constitution and read the great explainer on the spending clause, which is Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1 which says that only Congress has the power to quote, lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts and excises to pay debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. So the fact that Congress controls the purse strings of the government is a huge uh, check that it holds. It is what would prevent the president from uh, building a wall uh, uh, on the Mexican border unless Congress agreed to pay for it. And it's relevant to this case. So there's a wonderful explainer about the Spending Clause by Professors uh, Sam Bagenstos and Ilya Somin, and they say that it can be a tricky relationship between the feds and the states. They write, States today rely heavily on federal spending to provide public services. Federal funds account for just under a third of the average state budget. The more conditions Congress can place on receipt of federal funds, the more control Congress can exercise over the operation of state governments. So what limitations on the spending power does the Constitution impose? Well, the Supreme Court has said that Congress has to make its conditions clear at the time that the states accept the grants. That's the Arlington Central School District case from 2006. And then there was a case called South Carolina and Dole having to do with unconstitutional conditions, which I always thought sounded rather dramatic. Uh, What kind of condition could be unconstitutional? Well, Dole tells us if the Purpose of the condition is too loosely related to the purpose of the grant to which it to which it's attached, then that can be an unconstitutional condition. Uh, Dole says that the exercise of the spending power has to be per in pursuit of the general welfare. It has to do impose the conditions on the receipt of federal funds unambiguously, so states can knowingly choose whether to participate or not. And then the conditions on the federal grant may be illegitimate if they're unrelated to the federal interest in the particular national projects or programs, and finally, the power can't induce the states to engage in activities that are themselves unconstitutional, and the final condition, the financial inducements offered by Congress can't be so coercive as to pass the point at which pressure turns to compulsion. So the Feds can't put a financial gun to the head of the states and basically say, unless you do what we want, you're going to lose all this money, which is unrelated to the purpose of the grant. All of this came to a dramatic head in the Affordable Care Act case. And of progressives were very upset about the decision by—some progressives were upset by the decision by Justices Breyer and Kagan to join Chief Justice Roberts in the Affordable Care Act case in agreeing that one provision of the Affordable Care Act which threatened the loss of all Medicaid funds to states refusing to expand their program was unconstitutionally coercive. Their seven justices, the, the five conservatives plus Brian Kagan, said that because of the extremely large amount of money at stake, up to $3.3 trillion over three years, uh, this is 20% of the average state's total budget, and Chief Justice Roberts said this threat of losing all that money was essentially a gun to the head of the states, and the threat was not closely related to the purpose of the original grants. So all of those are a good framework for trying to begin to analyze this question. Now, here, the executive is withholding the funds. It's not Congress, and it's unclear whether the same analysis would apply to funds being withheld by the executive. For example, there's a federal program called the Justice Assistant Grant Program, which gives millions of dollars to local police. And if the Department of Justice wants to revoke this funding, it's not obvious that this doctrine of unconstitutional conditions set out by the Dole and Sibelius cases would apply, because here it's the president acting, not the executive. We might have to analyze the president's take-care duties. And remember, that was a part of the Affordable Care Act case that we did a podcast on about a year ago, and the Supreme Court didn't squarely confront. But the take-care clause of Article 2, Section 3 says the president has to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. If Congress says the executive can withhold funds to enforce the immigration laws, then you'd go to the next step of asking you know, whether he's uh, in fact taking care that the laws are faithfully executed. And if not, the question is to what extent is the withholding of funds necessary or in furtherance of the end? This is what San Francisco argues in its complaint. It says the funding restriction imposes new funding conditions on existing federal funds that go beyond the statutory conditions imposed by Congress and also conditions that are not germane to the purpose of the funds insofar as they reach funds that are unrelated to law enforcement or immigration. Some commentators have argued that under this coerciveness doctrine, Congress, and maybe even the president, can't constitutionally revoke funding. Ilya Soman on the Volokh conspiracy says, few if any federal grants to state and local government are conditioned on cooperation with federal deportation efforts, and the Supreme Court says, you have to impose these conditions unambiguously in the text of the law so state can decide whether or not to apply the funds. So he's basically agreeing that the analysis is similar when applied to the president and to Congress, but others disagree, go check out again that Price-Foley and Rivkin piece in the LA Times, which says the anti-coercion doctrine won't shield sanctuaries. Um, It notes this really interesting South Dakota and Dole case from 1987, which upheld Congress's decision to pass a law withholding 5% of highway funds from any states that refused to adopt a minimum drinking age of 21 because the purpose was to promote safe driving and therefore it it also wasn't coercive because it was only a small percent of the state's total budget, uh, and uh, the claim here is that the percentage is similarly modest, and that the purpose is in fact germane. Uh, so that's just a delightful constitutional appetizer <laughs> that will set up what's bound to be a deep dive into the immigration order and to any future travel bans. But what's so important, ladies and gentlemen, is we've got to start learning together about the structural constitution. It's not enough just to look at the Bill of Rights. We need to learn about Article I and Article II in order to figure out these really important, complicated questions involving funds. Tom, you uh, have studied the structural constitution and have really great thoughts on this. And I'm curious, as you hear the arguments on both sides, do you think that the same constraints apply when the president tries to withhold funds as when Congress tries to apply them?
0: I would think yes. I think the same concerns that were driving, uh, you know, the the, the uh, Roberts Court and NFIB um, would exist under the president as it, as it would for Congress. I think in the end, uh, what is animating the court in in those spending clause cases is a concern about the sovereignty of the states that could be violated as much by Congress as by the president. I think what's interesting about you know this particular case is that it does force us to ask that predicate question under Article Two, section three, the take care clause, of really closely probing um, what have these statutes said, what conditions have they put in place? And is the president acting pursuant to that congressionally delegated power? And if not, is there any inherent power that exists beyond that? Um and I think that that's sort of what the what the courts are going to have to wrestle with here. But I mean, what's so, interesting from a constitutional nerd perspective in these cases is that you get questions about congressional power article one presidential power article two the tenth amendment and state power and federalism um and then sort of these more recent line of cases uh designed to promote state sovereignty and federalism like prince like nfib and the spending clause um uh that you know ask all sorts of interesting questions about where is that division
1: between federal power and state power Tom Donnelly, Senior Fellow for Constitutional Studies, Structural Constitutionalist Extraordinaire. Uh, Just to review for our audience and for me, it seems kind of weird. Here, the president is issuing an executive order. Does that have the same status as a law passed by Congress, and is it therefore analyzed under the spending clause?
0: Also, I mean, I think. What the executive will do next is kind of is is what the Homeland Security Secretary did with the memoranda this past week, which is so you have the way these things frequently work. I think are you'll sort of have this executive order, then you'll have an administrative agency spell out and, and uh, sort of what that means practically on the ground for folks in the federal bureaucracy, and often the executive order will have. Uh, will will state uh, you know sort of more broad principles and broad policies, and then some of those policy making details, and also the the statutory arguments that would underlie them will frequently be made by those guidelines that are put out by the various agencies. Um, but I mean, I would imagine if I were you know the the city of San Francisco in a case like this, you would make an argument. Um, under, you know, uh, uh, Article 2, Section 3, sort of the same way that a lot of states made against President Obama's immigration order, that effectively the uh, Department of Homeland Security and the administration was not taking care that the immigration laws were being faithfully executed. Similarly, one could imagine in the sanctuary city context, if what's being done is an explicit threat to withhold funds based on not following um, a specific... Uh, statute that you could also say that, you know this does this violates the take care duty because the these funds were um given to us based on other federal programs that spending that that's done under Congress's spending power. um, and Congress didn't put these conditions in place, and the President has no power to do it afterwards. And you would think that also, you know, based on the guidance that's there from Dole, that's there from nfib, um, that it is the, the court over time, uh, up until NFIB had been quite permissive in terms of allowing Congress to put conditions on federal funds. NFIB signals with seven members of the court, perhaps tightening that a bit and requiring the unambiguous statement of the condition, that it not be unduly coercive and that it be linked to the purpose um, underlying the grant of funds. And so, you know, you would imagine that you'll, you'll get an argument under Article II and this argument under Prince and NFIB, which is connected to Congress's spending clause power.
1: Great. Well, I have a lot more questions for Tom, and we need to talk this through. But I think we both need to study the interactive constitution and read some more briefs before we get in deeper. So let's hold our fire. And this discussion relates to another question that came in, I think, about the delegation of congressional power to the president. Uh, And what was that question?
0: Absolutely. Um, Let's see. Article two doesn't provide much in the way of presidential powers, yet many see the president as the most powerful government actor. How much has Congress delegated
1: its powers to the executive, and is that a good thing? Ladies and gentlemen, where do we begin to answer this question? Why with the interactive constitution? And we're talking now about Article 1, Section 1, which says, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. And there's a phenomenal explainer on Article 1, Section 1 by William Eskridge and Naomi Rao. And I won't read the whole thing except to note that it begins by saying Article 1, Section 1 vests all legislative powers in Congress, which means the president and the Supreme Court cannot assert legislative authority. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, these explainers— signed by our scholars nominated by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society are like a unanimous Supreme Court majority opinion. You can be confident that every word that I've just read is agreed to by both sides. So I'm just stating the most settled and accepted bipartisan principles of constitutional law. And our scholars go on to say this marks an important separation of powers between the departments of the federal government. It has also been interpreted to include a principle of non-delegation that the people's representatives in Congress must make the law rather than delegate that power to the executive or judicial branch. Okay, it's time to prepare yourself for several months of learning about the non-delegation doctrine. And when I went to law school, I would have said that this was a musty atavism from a distant era because I was taught that the Supreme Court during the New Deal period tried to strike down parts of the New Deal as violating the president's power to uh, uh, delegate—sorry, violating Congress's power to delegate authority to the president. And the Supreme Court, in decisions that my hero Brandeis joined, invoked the non-delegation doctrine to strike down the most centralizing aspects of the New Deal. But after Franklin Roosevelt threatened to pack the court in the switch in time that saved nine, Justice Owen Roberts, no relation to the chief justice, shifted his vote— and since the 1930s, the non-delegation doctrine basically uh, fell out of fashion. But it's fashionable again. The non-delegation doctrine is back. And our, uh, it's not only uh, conservative opponents of the post-New Deal regulatory state that are asserting it, now progressives, as we see, who are opposed to some of President Trump's uh, executive orders are rediscovering the virtues of the non-delegation doctrine so you can there are a couple of big cases that i want you to read just to begin to learn about this the most important and you just read it for pleasure because it's so beautiful and so totemically important um and also because it's written by judge justice robert jackson the most beautiful writer of the 20th century whose seat neil gorsuch has been nominated to fill so we need to make this robert jackson uh Uh, month or the next couple months, the decision is Youngstown, sheet and tube v. Sawyer. Jackson's concurrence defines the broad outlines of executive power. And really fast, just remember, to review, there are three categories of presidential authority. When the president acts with the support of Congress, his power is at its zenith or height. When he acts in the face of congressional disapproval, his power is at its nadir or lowest point. And when Congress hasn't clearly spoken, he's in a zone of twilight, Uh, And it's not clear exactly what he can do. So that's the place to start. And there are a bunch of other non-delegation cases, including the Whitman and American trucking case from 2000, where uh, the court reaffirmed the non-delegation doctrine, uh, although some justices think it should be applied more seriously than others. Justice Thomas dissenting in Whitman really wants to ramp it up. What about Judge Gorsuch? Uh, Well, as it turns out, he has written uh, a really important case Uh, in which he seems to call for a resurrection of non-delegation principles. And we talked a little bit about it on our podcast about Judge Gorsuch, but the case is called Gutierrez-Brizuela versus Lynch. And uh, Judge Gorsuch's majority opinion said that federal agencies can't retroactively revise and overturn a judicial decision about the law's meaning. Gorsuch wrote a separate decision talking about the growth of the regulatory state and arguing that cases like the Chevron case have permitted executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that's difficult to square with the constitution of the framers' design. During the Gorsuch confirmation hearings, expect to hear some vigorous discussion about the non-delegation doctrine and its scope. Supporters think that it will rein in an out-of-control bureaucracy and an out-of-control executive Opponents think that it would substitute judicial policymaking for those of executive agencies. But that's some of the broad framework about non-delegation, and we've got lots to learn before we can make up our own minds. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, and that's going to do it for today. Jeff, let's do it again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for your great Ask Jeff questions. And of course, if you have any questions in between these thrilling and riveting <laughs> Uh, episodes of Ask Jeff, which are so much fun for Tom and me and our great podcast team, you can just email them to me, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, and I will do my best to answer them. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and David Stotts. It was produced by Diana Allen and Nicandro Inachi. Research was provided by Dan Meyer and Lana Ulrich. Special thanks to Tom Donnelly, Senior Fellow for Constitutional Studies, for being a superb interlocutor. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using @constitution_ctr. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our thrilling weekly roundup of constitutional news and debate, which includes the constitutional question of the week and great balanced resources for you to answer it, including the relevant provision from the interactive Constitution. Go to bit.ly forward slash Constitution Please also subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.